Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and welcome to Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today is Saturday, March 7th. I'm sorry, this is Christogenia on Talk Show. It's Friday. I'm lost. See that? My time's flying. That This is Friday, March 2nd, 2012. That the... um. The, the the primary Christogenia server crashed on Wednesday morning, and it was down. Of course, it crashed while I was sleeping, right? And and um, I didn't suspect a hardware problem at that time, and it came back up, and it ran until Thursday morning, when it crashed again while I was sitting here looking at it, and and that's when I suspected a hardware problem. I had ordered a um, a new server on Wednesday night, a very large server, and um, for for not much more money than it's costing me now for my primary server. But that that's the state of the the state of the technology is that it advances greatly in in a short time, and and then something much better is basically the same price. So so um. I, it's going to take two to three weeks to deliver this server, but I've also ordered a second, slightly smaller server. So Christogenia is going to be upgrading two new servers that are both much larger than what we have now. Currently, the site's running on my backup server, which is not very large, and, and I'm already consuming about 90% of the disk space on my backup server. And, and Christogenia is pretty big. It sits on about 160 gigabytes of disk space. And, and um, that includes my site and Clifton's and the MindComp site and the forum and, and um, all of the Christogenia subdomains. But, well, um, I have a second server on order, and as soon as I get that second server, and that's supposed to be due in 24 to 48 hours, and, and hopefully I'll have that up running and running by um, Sunday night or Monday, and then all of the websites at Christogenia which are not up now, will be running and, and find a permanent home on, on my new second server because I'm going to distribute my websites now. I have a new plan, and I'm going to distribute them across two servers because one server is getting too much traffic. Christogenia is serving up at least 20 gigabytes a day of, of data, which is wonderful. I mean, praise Yahweh for that, right? We're getting about 800 to 1,000 visitors a day not the last four days, of course, because I've been down half the time, and um, the, the site is doing real well. Half of my visitors are new and half are repeats, and that's, I, I think, excellent. The word is getting out there. That's, I don't ever expect to be popular but like, some, like the clowns of November and, and other clowns in Christian identity. I know that I'm never going to be popular. I'm never going to be well-liked. Never but I plan on being effective. And, and Christogenia is by far the most read website in Christian identity. And I also praise Yahweh for that. The, um, the main site is up, the MindComp site, the Saxon Messenger site, and the Christogenia forum, the TeamSpeak server, and one of my... Well, well, actually, two of my three streaming radio stations are all up. One streaming radio station is down. It'll remain down until I get this, this server set up on, on Monday or Tuesday. And um, all of the other sites, there's about 18 sites that are christogenia.org, will be up by then. I, I can put them up now, but I don't 
want to tax my backup server because it's a, a smaller server than my primary. And um, I'll just be afraid that that'll crash, right? Before I begin, I'd like to repeat Obadiah 1, 15, and 16 again. I'm going to repeat it until people get it. It's, you know, these people that love to quote Obadiah 1.18, which prophecies the, the final and complete demise of the house of Esau, which all Christians everywhere should look forward to, they're embarrassed or they omit Obadiah 1.16. And shame on them. Shame on them for not understanding the exclusivity of the covenants and the Gospels, not just the covenants, but the Gospels too. You know, there's a certain clown in Christian identity that, 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 that wrote in his book that the covenants are for Israel, but the Gospel is for everybody. Well, that's a straight lie. The Gospel is the announcement to the dispersion of Israel of the good news of their reconciliation to God. That's what the Gospel is. It's the announcement of the good news, of the reconciliation between Israel and Yahweh, which is found in the blood of Yahshua Christ. That's what the gospel is. All these other nations who have overrun all Israelite lands everywhere, well, Obadiah 1, 15 and 16 talk about them, and I'll repeat, from the NAS, and the only reason why I'm quoting the NAS, the North American Standard Version, is because it properly treats the word goyim, which means nations. For the day of Yahweh draws near on all the nations, as you have done, it will be done unto you. What have the other nations done? I'll tell you what they've done. They've wanted to destroy all white people everywhere. That's what they've done. Your dealings will turn onto your own head. Because just as you drank upon my holy mountain, my holy mountain, Yahweh's holy mountain is the people of Israel. That is Zion in Scripture. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, and they're all living off us and parasiting off us today, all the nations will drink continually. That's what they're doing. They will drink and swallow and become as if they have never existed. You want to teach a false gospel of preservation to the other races? That is not the gospel of Christ. You shall be accursed, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. So all you clowns of November that love to quote Obadiah 118, you better all back up a couple of verses and take a long, hard look at Obadiah 115 and 16 and stop, reject the gospel's universalism. Reject it. It's evil. I was glad to have um, Pastor Mark Downey on, on, on here last Saturday and, and to see that, you know, Mark has been involved in Christian identity for 36 years. That's almost as long as Clifton, I think, or maybe just as long. I, I don't know. I mean, Clifton has been involved in this for a long time, too. Well, well, it's nice to see that Mark fully agrees with, with the position that Clifford and I have on the issue of universalism. I, I mean, we don't agree on everything, right? But we fully agree on the issue of universalism. And, and it's, you know, 
Clifton and I, who have the traditional two-seed line approach and, and to, the, to the other races and the end times, and there are posts on Christagenia.org from Compare and Swift that prove that. And, and there are certain elements in Christian identity it, that call themselves two-seed line that are trying to bring in some sort of newfangled Ted Whelan, James Brueggemann, Stephen Jones, half-assed, wishy-washy type of, of Christian identity and, and they're being lukewarm and wishy-washy about the gospel, and, and because they're nice guys, a whole lot of fools are swallowing this crap down, and they may as well be Catholics. They may as well all be Catholics. It's a damn shame that, that people are that unstable in, in, in the Scripture to swallow this Jew psychobabble about universalism, because that's what it is. I don't care if, if they claim they're not universalists. It, it's like the pot calling the kettle black and the kettle denying it. I don't care if they deny the fact that they're universalists. That's the doctrine that they espouse is universalism. The extension of mercy to anybody but Israel the extension of, of the promise of preservation here on, on, in this life in the kingdom of heaven to anybody but Israel, that's universalism. Jesus Christ said, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He won't see it as a slave. He won't see it as an alien. He won't see it by any means. He shall not see the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 3. The universalists in Christian identity, they are also Christ deniers. They're denying the words of our Lord and Savior. And they use Jewish tactics to label me an exterminationist. That they use tactics right out of the ADL playbook to, to make the, the position that Clifton and I hold to, to make it appear unsavory. That, that's right. That, that's something Simon Wiesenthal would do. That, that's something Abe Foxman would do. It's not anything that, that, that a so-called Christian identity pastor should do. The man is a clown. Now that I have that off my chest, I, I'm going to keep beating that drum but because we have to get it. If we don't get the, the clear message of Scripture on the issue of race, we can't get anything else. Forget it. You ain't going to get anything else. You're going to be wishy-washy and lukewarm for the rest of your life. That's just the way it is. If you don't have the courage to stand up and speak the truth, go crawl back into the damn cave in Illinois where you came from. Tonight I'm going to present 1 Peter, chapter 1. I had hoped to present the first couple of chapters, and, and um, it, it's, there's enough material in Chapter 1, and, and I didn't want to get into Chapter 2 unless I could finish it. That, that's the way I like to draw the lines, right? Each of the epistles of Peter are disputed by various critics. The first epistle is rejected because, by some because its language is considered to be the highly polished work of an educated man. And, of course, from the scripture, we know that Peter was not an educated man. The second epistle is often rejected because it was disputed at an early time. It is not often quoted in the early Christian writings, and its language is often quite rough. 
and, and reflects the language of a person unlearned. The differences are easily accounted if it is understood that 1 Peter which is more or less a formal treatise, was probably related by Peter and penned by Sylvanus, which is evident in 1 Peter 5.12, where it says, By Sylvanus, the faithful brother, as I reckon I have written to you. And 2 Peter was more of an informal letter that Peter may have written himself, since no one else in it is mentioned in, in that manner. Both epistles are written to the same audience. They're both written to the same people. That will become manifest as we proceed through them. While there are only what may or may not be allusions to 2 Peter in the writings of Clement and in the writings of Justin, early Christian writers, the epistle is quoted by Hippolytus, it was later disputed by the Catholics, and I use that word here with a capital C in its more modern traditional sense. It was disputed by the Catholics such as Eusebius who called it one of the disputed books, and he also labeled Jude as being one of the disputed books. While 2 Peter is little attested, that would not be alarming for a letter that is more or less an informal follow-up to the first longer and more formal treatise. I will offer more in, in the defense of 2 Peter when I present it later this month. As for 1 Peter, it is often quoted and always thought to have authentically belonged to Peter by significant early Christian writers. For instance, Irenaeus, Irenaeus quotes 1 Peter 2.16 in Book 4, Chapter 16 of his Against Heresies, and he quotes 1 Peter, chap 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 in Book 4, Chapter 9, and in Book 5, Chapter 7 of that same work. There are other passages also where Irenaeus quotes elsewhere that belong to Peter. Irenaeus often also calls Mark the interpreter of Peter, and, and that is corroborated by some other early Christian writers, and that means that Mark wrote Peter's Gospel. Likewise, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian also quote from this first epistle of Peter on various occasions, as do other early Christian writers. So, so there's little doubt that one Peter can be attributed fairly and surely to Peter. The epistle of, this epistle of Peter's was written to the uncircumcised and not to the circumcision. If it were written to the circumcision, who for the most part were rejected or had already rejected Christ, and who were instigating the persecutions of Christians, then we would not have it preserved to us. It could be fairly inferred, or, or at least fairly imagined, by the existence of these two epistles, that Peter must have written other epistles which were not preserved, and probably for that very reason, <laughs> because the circumcision hated the Christian message, right, and, and sought to destroy it. 
This epistle was written to Israelites, Israelites of the original dispersions, which had occurred at the hands of the Assyrians and also the voluntary migrations, which happened even long before that, many centuries before Peter's own time. The context of the epistle shall demonstrate the truth of these assertions. The epistle was written to Christians of Western Anatolia in all the places where Paul had at first founded assemblies. Several passages show that the epistle was not written to the circumcision. Among those passages are 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 25, and, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, which all prove that Peter is not writing to Judeans, but to the dispersion of Israel from the Assyrian deportations and before time. Because the words in Hosea, which Peter cites, could only refer to them and could never refer to the Judeans of the remnant 70 weeks kingdom, the Daniel 9 kingdom, right? Which was the kingdom of the Maccabees and later of Herod. At 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, the apostle makes a direct reference to Hosea, who was writing about the Assyrian deportations of the northern kingdom and the deportations of much of Judah along with them. And I quote, where Peter says, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for out of which, for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of God, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. That's a direct quote from Hosea. At 1 Peter 2.25, the apostle makes a reference to the writings of the prophet Ezekiel, where he says, For you were as sheep wandering astray, but you must return now to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When Christ said, I have come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he was referring to those same lost sheep. He was referring to the lost sheep of Ezekiel chapter 34. Where Ezekiel states among, well, Yahweh states through Ezekiel, among other things, that my sheep wandered through all the mountains, wandered, past tense, through all the mountains, and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Ezekiel chapter 34 was written over a century after the Assyrian deportations of most of Israel and Judah. But it was written before the final destruction of Jerusalem. So it can't possibly include those people who went off to Babylon after Ezekiel wrote chapter 34 and came back many years later. It can't be talking about them. Therefore, it can't be talking about the people 
which we now call Jews. Lastly, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 alludes to idolatry and other behavior which describes not the 70-week kingdom, but only the earlier dispersion of Israel. The 12 tribes scattered abroad, as James calls them, where he says, for enough of the time has passed, perpetuating the will of the heathens or of the non-Israelite nations in this sense, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. I should say non-Christian nations. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of Israel according to the flesh, dispersed Israel. And they're the people Peter's addressing. And Paul said that whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. Throughout 1 Peter, and, and there weren't Jews sacrificing to demons at this time, right? Paul's not talking about them. Paul's talking about Israel according to the flesh, the dispersed Israel according to the flesh, the descendants of the seed of Israel taken into Assyrian captivity. They are the people Peter's addressing and uses the same description of them in their practice of Canaanite paganism, which we see in Hosea, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that the children of Israel had adopted, and that is why they were cast out of the sight of God. So Peter and Paul are addressing the same audience. Throughout 1 Peter, we see a reinforcement of many things which Paul had taught. In 2 Peter, we see an explicit defense of Paul. For these reasons, and because these epistles were written outside of the scope of the book of Acts, and at a late time, a time close to Peter's death, which he actually anticipates in 2 Peter 1.14, I believe that these two epistles were written to the assemblies of Anatolia, which Paul founded, in order to reinforce the very same things which Paul had taught them. And they were written at a time either after Paul's imprisonment in Rome or even possibly after Paul had already been executed by Nero. Peter was writing these assemblies of the uncircumcised, these Christian assemblies in Anatolia, to reinforce the things that Paul taught. And reinforce them he does. With that, I will start with 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Petros, ambassador of Yahshua Christ, to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of Pontus. Pontus is that district of modern Turkey, which is immediately below, it, it's on the southern shore of the Black Sea. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Cappadocia is that part of Anatolia which is closer to, or modern Turkey, right? Which is in the central location closer to Syria, and Galatia is west of that, and Bithynia is south of that, and, and Asia is the 
westernmost part of Asia Minor, as it was called by the Romans. The district of Asia was the westernmost quarter, perhaps, of, of modern Turkey, right? According to the foreknowledge of Father Yahweh in a sanctification, or God the Father, in a sanctification of the Spirit in obedience and a sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ, favor to you and peace be multiplied. The word dispersion is the Greek word diaspora. It's only used in the New Testament on two other occasions, in John, speaking of the Greeks, and in James of the Twelve Tribes. It appears in two Maccabees once and in the prophets several times, always speaking of the children of Israel. Never does this word appear in biblical writings speaking of Judeans or so-called Jews. That's a use that the Jews have referring to themselves after 70 A.D., an examination of the book of Jeremiah and Christ's prophecies concerning Jerusalem, which were fulfilled in 70 AD, proves beyond all doubt to the Christian mind that the people who were dispersed in 70 AD were not the people of God. They were the enemies of God. They were the enemies of God in Jeremiah. They were the enemies of God at the time of Christ. They're the enemies of God today, and they are the people that Obadiah 1.18 is talking about. Obadiah 1.16 is talking about everybody else. They will be the enemies of God until they are all destroyed. The only mass conversion of Jews at the return of Yahshua Christ is to ashes. So the word dispersion in the scripture never applies to the Jews. It always applies to Israel. Peter here uses the word parapodemos, which the King James translates as stranger. The word parapodemos is not a stranger. It doesn't mean a stranger. It means a sojourner. In Greek, it describes one who leaves his land and travels in a strange country, and wherever it appears elsewhere in his Greek scriptures, it is speaking about the Adamic race on earth, or it's speaking about the early children of Israel, and that's what Peter is referring to here. The children of Israel who departed from the main body of Israel before the Assyrian dispersions or were taken into captivity in the Assyrian dispersions, they are the parapodemoi. They are the, the, the sojourners, which Peter references here. Peter defines sojourner by his use of paroikos, which is a synonym, and it's rendered here as sojourn in 1 Peter 1.17, which I will discuss later. The two words, parapodemus and paroikos, and, and they'll be explained in their time, appear together as nouns in 1 Peter 2.11. Using this language here, Peter relates the people that he is writing to to those same people of the Old Testament. He's writing to the elect sojourners of the dispersion. In Genesis 23, 4, we see the words of Abraham, 
I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight, speaking to the Hittites. In Psalm 39, 12, we hear the words of David. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. 1 Chronicles 29, 15. For we are strangers before thee and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding, none remaining. Hebrews 11, verse 13, from the King James. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and confessed, that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth, strangers and sojourners. The Judeo-Christians love to talk about the foreknowledge of the Father, which Peter invokes here. But then they refuse to admit that the foreknowledge of the Father is revealed in the prophets, in the Old Testament. They call themselves New Testament Christians. Absolutely foolish. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he was an apostle of the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred writings, talking about the Old Testament, and that throughout those writings, salvation, redemption, and eternal life are promised only to the physical, genetic, legitimate children of the 12 tribes of Israel and to nobody else. To repeat verses 1 and 2 in, in 1 Peter, I, Peter, ambassador of Yahshua Christ to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of Father Yahweh, and this is important, in a sanctification of the spirit and obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ. Favor to you and peace be multiplied. Here Peter connects the sacrifice of Christ directly with the Old Covenant Israelites and tells us that the sprinkling of his blood is the blood of the New Covenant, which was promised to those very same Israelites. Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8, it is written, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has said, we will do and be obedient. Or they lying. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you concerning these words. One Peter, one three. Blessed is Yahweh, even the father of our prince, Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead. For an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us, who are being preserved, us who are being preserved, by the power of Yahweh, 
through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. Yeah, you know, when I write a translation without notes, it, it's difficult because um, I wanted to get the Christogenian New Testament published and the notes are voluminous, and, and I just haven't had time to, to even think about them. The, um, hopefully these podcasts will, will, will serve as my notes on, on my website for some time to come. It's hard to choose a translation and say, this is the right way and this is the only way. And, and there are many passages which have two legitimate translations, which neither one conflicts with Scripture, and this is one of them, right? The Greek word, anagineo, most literally means raised up. Although all lexicons, all those New Testament lexicons, define the word as to be born again. What a lie. And they get away with that since it is a very obscure word outside of the New Testament. The first century B.C. philosopher Philodemus used this word to express the act of arousal or refreshment. It may have been aroused here, revived or reinvigorated. However, when I translated this word in the Christianity New Testament, I was more concerned with addressing the born-again crowd and with being consistent with John chapter 3, as Christ clearly used a very similar phrase, genethe anothen, to describe somebody being born from above, which is exactly literally what that phrase means. And also to remain consistent with the way Peter used the word in 1 Peter 1.23. A better translation may be here, who according to his great mercy has revived us into a living hope. Since, having been alienated from Yahweh in divorce, the nation of Israel was as good as dead until the time of their reconciliation to Yahshua Christ, when they were revived and reconciled to God. The salvation, that, that the salvation is prepared for the last time, as Peter calls it. I'll read Isaiah 45. I'm sorry, I'm confused. I'll read um, Job 19, 26 and 27. And though after my skin... Worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Reins being a, a, an archaic word for internal organs, for the kidneys, or, or whatever. Job understood that after his body saw corruption, that after his human body was dead, he would see God again in his flesh. Psalm chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm 30, verses 3 through 6. O Yahweh, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down into the pit. Sing unto Yahweh, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endures but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. 
And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Psalm 41, verse 9. Yeah, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, and this is, of course, a messianic prophecy, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Yahweh, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requit them, pay them back. By this I know that thou favorest me, because mine enemy does not triumph over me. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and settest me before thy face forever. Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The idea here being that the promise of eternal life for each individual Israelite has existed for quite some time. It's not anything new that New Testament Christians have invented. It's the hope and the faith of the Old Testament Christians as well. Let us repeat these verses of Peter's again so that we could see just what, is, what he is referring to from the prophets. Blessed is Yahweh, even the father of our prince, Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead. For an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us, who, us who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7, is a messianic prophecy, and I will quote it. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. Yahweh has called me from out of the womb. From the bowels of my mother he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with my God. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, Israel is scattered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a delight thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. This is what Peter's talking about, where he talks about the faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. The raising up of the tribes of Jacob and the restoration of the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light unto the nations, the Genesis 10 Adamic nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, 
to whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because Yahweh is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Only Israel has that promise of a raising up. Note verses 5 and 6 of this passage of Isaiah, where it says, Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest raise, shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. There's no replacement theology here. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Psalm 37, verse 28, For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. All of the children of Israel are the saints. The word saints, in its Greek form as it appears in Scripture, means sanctified ones. All of the children of Israel are the sanctified ones of Yahweh. There are no exceptions. Deuteronomy 33.3, yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. Psalm 148.14, he also exalts the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints. The word even is added to the text. The children of Israel, a people near to him, praise ye Yahweh. The word even is added to the text there in all versions. I skipped over it. All of the children of Israel are his saints. They were, they were all in the loins of Isaac when he was sacrificed on the altar by Abraham, his father. That word saint, that the idea in the ancient world of sacrificing somebody or something, anything, on an altar. And this is very clear in all of the Greek classics. But when a man wants to give something to a god in a temple, he goes into the temple and he puts it on the altar. And the priest of the temple can use that item on the altar any way he wishes, it now belongs to the temple. That was the custom throughout the ancient world. And you'll often read in the classics about things being dedicated to the God in the temple. That's how it was done. Only Isaac, of all the people in the world, of all of the Adamic race, only Isaac was commanded by Yahweh to be placed on an altar and dedicated to him. A man's father in the ancient world has the, the, um, the, the rights of, of property practically over his sons. Abraham possessed Isaac, his son. Abraham is the only one who could legitimately give Isaac to Yahweh, and Abraham did. Paul says there are two vessels from the same lump. 
Esau and Jacob, one for dishonor, one for destruction, the other one for honor and for mercy. That's Jacob. So Abraham sanctified Isaac to the purposes of God on that altar. That was a ceremony. That was Abraham surrendering his son to God. His son Isaac became Yahweh's possession. If you're not a descendant of Isaac, you can have no part with any of that. Esau and Jacob are the only descendants from Isaac. And Esau is promised destruction, and Jacob is promised mercy. The very act of placing Isaac on that altar foretold the absolute racial exclusivity of the covenants. If you don't descend from Isaac, you have no part with those covenants, with any of them. Isaiah 45:25 In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. When Paul calls the Israelites vessels of mercy in Romans chapter 9, he doesn't exclude any of them. All the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 In which you must rejoice. If for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ, whom not having seen you love, and whom not now seeing but believing you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls. The Romish Catholics want to move this trial by fire to the afterlife in order to control people for themselves and to justify that control over them in this life. They have not been godly. Rather, for the past seven or eight centuries, they have been a principal scourge of God's people. The trials of this life are the trials of fire, which we must all face being tested. And Peter talks about this again in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Beloved, do not be astonished by the burning among you taking place for a trial for you, as if a strange thing is happening to you. But just as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice in order that also in the revelation of his honor, exulting you would rejoice. Many take these words as a reference to the persecutions. But Peter and Paul understood that true Christians would always be persecuted, as did also Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Paul, recounting a lot of the heroes of, of the Old Testament, says, And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and of Samson and of Jephthah, and of David also, and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths 
of lions. Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness we were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They rejected their deliverance at that time, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They still have that hope. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yeah, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. In other words, even though they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise of the redemption, they would still be made perfect, right? They still had that promise. They just didn't see it as they lived. The entire theme of the Bible is summarized in Genesis 3.15, that there would be perpetual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, who collectively are Satan, the enemies of our God. And, and there are probably more than that, right? Until the day came when he would destroy them once and for all. Here we see in Hebrews that the Christian trial has also been to resist them, and still it is to this day. It is those same people who were also responsible for the persecutions of Christians which brought that same trial to the recipients of Peter's epistles. The Jews, according to Tertullian, according to Minutius Felix, the Jews were behind all of the persecutions of Christians at the hands of the Romans. The Jews were instigating those persecutions. And so it is today. They infiltrate white nations and influence the leaders to persecute the people. They still act in those same patterns. Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh, because it is a trial. And what if the sword contend even the rod? It shall be no more, saith Yahweh God. Thou therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite thine hands together. Let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which enter into their privy chambers. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint, and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright, it is wrapped up for the slaughter. The heroes of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, Samson, Jephthah, David, and the rest, they were victorious over their enemies, because the nation was generally obedient to the laws of Yahweh. The blessings of obedience, the curses of disobedience, they affect us to this very day. The later children of Israel, 
Yahweh allowed his enemies to prevail over in their disobedience. We can only overcome our trials in Christ. We will never have a victory without him. If we were not a sinful people, our enemies would never be able to do us harm. Five of us would chase a thousand. The Mexicans couldn't wait to get back over the border. In verse 9, Peter says to his readers, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls. This idea has been so often abused by universalists that even those in Christian identity cave into the universalist thinking that we as individuals must hear the gospel and believe it in order to be saved. Yes, the result of our faith is the preservation of our souls. But that is not necessarily the result of our individual faith, which is referred to. We are not in control of the outcome of Yahweh's promises to our father and our race. We are not in control. You were bought with a price, and you are not your own. We have no individual faith even though each of us may be believers in a common faith. The promise, as Paul says, is to be certain to all the offspring. Romans chapter 4. Describing the faith of Abraham, which was that his offspring would become many nations. The faith exists, whether any particular Israelite has heard it or not. The faith is the common belief in the promises and the certainty of the prophecies concerning Christ and concerning Israel, which all true Christians, who can only be pure Israelite Christians, should each have in common. It's a common faith. It's not an individual faith. That faith promises to save all of Israel. It is not an individual faith which each Israelite has on his own. It is a collective faith which every Israelite has a part in whether or not he or she is aware of it. The result of that common faith is the preservation of our people. Verse 10, concerning which preservation the prophets inquired and examined. Those having prophecy concerning the favor which is for you collectively, seeking for which things or at what time the Spirit of Christ in them indicated, testifying beforehand the sufferings for Christ and the honors after these things, to whom it had been revealed that not for themselves, but for you they furnish these things, things which are now reported to you through those announcing the good message to you and the Holy Spirit being sent from heaven, things which the messengers or the angels desire to peer into. This again agrees with the words of Paul, that the prophets looked forward to the future, where he said in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 through 40, of the Old Testament saints, and these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they, meaning those Old Testament saints, 
without us should not be made perfect. In other words, we, having received the promises in Christ, are on a par with the Old Testament prophets and the people of that time. Of course, it nevertheless includes the Old Testament saints along with the Christians where Paul says that they, without us, should not be made perfect. There is a strong connection of the Old Testament with the New in these passages in Peter and in Paul. For the prophets did not write that the children of strangers would receive the blessings and the promises of the covenants. Rather, the prophets wrote that the children of Israel the seed of Abraham through Jacob would receive all of these things. And that is exactly who the apostles delivered the gospel to and no one else. The covenants and the gospel are only for the children of Israel. On which account, girding up the loins of your minds, being absolutely sober, you must have hope upon the favor being brought to you in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former desires in your ignorance, but according to the Holy One who is called you, you yourselves must be holy in all conduct. Since it is written that you must be holy because I am holy. The two words translated as sober in the New Testament are sophronine, which is to be of sound mind, or to be temperate, discreet, to show self-control, and nephine, the infinitive, which is to drink no wine, to be sober, often used in the sense for the, to be dispassionate. Here it is nephine, literally to drink no wine. While many may protest this, I would not take it that literally anyway. But I would take it to mean to drink no wine excessively, to be sober-minded in all that we do. Peter uses the same word again where he states in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour. He's usually wearing a $500 suit and a pair of Gucci's, right? Has a funny last name. Lindstedt or something like that. Peter's warning us of the Antichrist Jew. Paul likewise says at 1 Thessalonians 5.8, using this same word, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. We cannot be drunk or stoned and go through life and attend to build the kingdom of God. We should be sober-minded. Where Peter mentions obedient children not being conformed to the former desires in your ignorance, his statement is only applicable to dispersed Israelites. It's not applicable to the Judeans of the 70 weeks kingdom where Peter mentions the Holy One who has called you. He can again only mean those Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel, such as those found in Isaiah chapters 43 and 45. Here's Isaiah 43, 1. 
But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. You are mine. That was never said to anybody else. He called Jacob. He called the children of Israel. Isaiah 45, 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee. Though thou hast not known me, you yourselves must also be holy in all conduct, since it is written that you must be holy because I am holy. That's exactly what Peter's referring to, and it only refers to the children of Israel. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44, and chapter 19, verse 2, all both say, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, and 20, verse 26. And you shall be holy unto me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. We are still severed from those other people in the eyes of our God. Nobody is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven unless the name of their tribe is written on one of the gates of that kingdom. And only the 12 tribes of the house of Israel had their names written on those gates. Peter's message is entirely exclusive to the Old Testament children of Israel. All throughout this epistle, Peter consistently cites promises to those same elect strangers and sojourners, the people estranged by God, the people who were not a people, but now are called the children of the living God. Those sinners who Yahweh put away and promised to take back. They're the only people that have any part at all in the new covenant. And Peter reinforces that idea throughout 1 Peter. Consistently appealing to those same promises concerning those same children of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Verse 17. And if you call upon the Father, who without respect for the stature of persons, respect of persons, judges each according to work. You must conduct your judges each Israelite according to work in context. You can't suddenly forget about all these other passages and throw some non-Israelites in here. It can't be done. The context doesn't allow for it. You're being dishonest. You're making God a liar or at least you're trying hard. You must conduct yourselves in fear for the time of your sojourn, knowing that not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, have you been redeemed? Have you been redeemed from out of your vain conduct, handed down by your fathers? That race thing is quite important, isn't it? Why would that be mentioned even? To these people. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb, blameless and spotless, indeed having been foreknown before the foundation of society, 
but being made manifest upon the last times on account of you. They must be Israelites. Those who through him believe in Yahweh, who has raised him from among the dead and has given honor to him, consequently, for your faith and hope to be in Yahweh. Respect for the stature of persons has only to do with status. It has nothing to do with race. The scriptures are exclusive to the children of Israel. Since race is not even a biblical consideration in regard of the covenants, which were only made with the children of Israel. James chapter 2 explains respect of persons as respect for a person's status in judgment or in how we treat our brethren according to their status, where people just simply tend to kiss the ass of the rich. And James explains that in not so many words and to despise the poor. When in fact, we should do just the opposite. The rich can look out for themselves, and we should take care of the poor. Where Peter says, you must conduct yourselves in fear for the time of your sojourn. Our sojourn is this worldly life, as we have already seen that the word was also used in that manner in the Old Testament. This helps us to define Peter's use of the word sojourner in the opening line of this epistle where he called the people whom he was addressing strangers and sojourners, or I'm sorry, elect sojourners. We haven't gotten to strangers and sojourners yet. That's in chapter 2. Elect sojourners, those who were called by God, again, the children of Israel. Peter's mention of your vain conduct handed down by your fathers is a direct reference to the ancient Israelites who were cast off by Yahweh because of their vanity. Idol worship, worldliness, and especially fornication. In Hosea, we saw frequent reference to, the, to Azan and to Beth Haven. Words which mean vanity and house of vanity. Beth Haven at the time was also a seat of idolatry. In Hosea 12.11, Yahweh asks, Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yeah, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. The paganism that the children of Israel went off into before the time of Hosea is the vanity handed down from their fathers all throughout European culture that Peter refers to. Again, Peter portrays Christ. Peter portrays Christ in this passage as the sacrificial lamb of God. But with precious the but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, blameless and spotless. He is also portrayed in that way in John chapter 1, where twice John the Baptist exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God, referencing Yahshua Christ. Here Peter states, But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, blameless and spotless, indeed having been foreknown before the foundation of society. 
as Yahweh, or the world, if you'll have it that way, as Yahweh has foreknown all things, and as the first promise of salvation is found at Genesis 3.22, which applies to the Adamic race generally, although those promises were carried down through Abraham and Jacob, Peter then says, but being made manifest upon the last times on account of you, where again he can only mean those children of Israel to whom the promises were made. Here we also see that Peter accounted the Christian era as the last times, as Paul also did, where Paul says in Hebrews 1-2 that God in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son. The children of Israel were redeemed. They were bought back from the world. Yahshua did not, as so many fools insist, buy the world. He bought back the children of Israel, who sold themselves into sin. That is the essence of redemption. That is why redemption was necessary. The nation was divorced by Yahweh, and Yahweh promised to remarry the nation. The only way he could do that, and that promise is explicit several times in the prophets, especially in Hosea, the only way he could do that was to come as a man and die in order to fulfill the law, as Paul explains in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. By the law, that is the only way he could have Israel back. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, also puts these two ideas together, where it says, Thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, the mother being the nation, whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 2 and 3. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. As Peter says, the children of Israel would be redeemed without money, not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Christ. Not the world. There's nothing in the scripture where Christ buys the world except that some foolish people want to misinterpret one parable, and it is a misinterpretation, in order to change their doctrine and universalize scripture. No, Christ didn't buy the world. Christ bought back the children of Israel, which is what the prophecy explicitly states. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you are bought, you meaning the Corinthians, the children of Israel. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they are indeed descended from the seed of Abraham, from the children of Israel, when he tells them that their ancestors, their fathers, were in the cloud with Moses and passed through the sea. He tells them, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Their spirits belong to God. If indeed 
We are Adamic people having the Spirit of God. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 7.23 You were bought with a price, be ye not the servants of men. Talking to dispersed Israelites, Paul said to the Ephesians 1.7, referring to Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The Ephesians also were dispersed ancient Israelites. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, who ye, ye who sometimes, or at one time, were afar off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. The reconciliation to God through Christ is what Paul also mentions in Ephesians 2.16, where he states, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. The word both refers to the dispersed far-off Israelites and the remnant close-by Israelites, Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, the true Israelites of Judea. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of a New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, nobody, under the first, nobody who is not under the First Testament can be included in the New. If your ancestors were not under that First Testament, they cannot be included in the New. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Again, Paul, as Peter, referred these things to they which are called. Repeating Isaiah 43.1, But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, they're all the same people, right? Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. Yahshua's redemption of Israel is also governed by the laws of kinsman redemption, which are also found in scriptures along with examples such as that which is found in Ruth chapter 4, and Ruth was an Israelite, and so was Naomi. Here is the law as it appears in Leviticus 25.25. If thy brother be waxen poor, and has sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Psalm 130, verse 8. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities, no exceptions, 
And Israel alone has these promises. 1 Chronicles 17, 21 and 22. And what nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people, his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, by driving out nations from before thy people, whom now has redeemed out of Egypt? For thy people Israel did make thine own people for thou did make thine own people forever, and thou Yahweh became their God. As Paul explains in Romans eight twenty nine, for whom he did foreknow. Amos says, Amos three two, at Amos three two Yahweh says, For you Israel have I known out of all the peoples of the earth. Yahweh only knew the children of Israel. He only claimed the children of Israel as his own. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate. Only the children of Israel can make that claim. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, our kinsman redeemer. All of these threads run together in Scripture. They all stand together so that they cannot be fully understood and appreciated in isolation. 1 Peter one twenty two. Your souls, having been purified in the obedience of the truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart, you should love one another earnestly, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible. By the word of Yahweh who lives and abides, since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory is a flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Now this is that which is spoken, which is announced to you, our promise. The children of Israel have an unconditional promise that Yahweh will cleanse them of all their sins. This is mentioned many times in the prophets. Ezekiel 36:25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. Paul, I'm sorry, Yahshua Christ, talking to the apostles, talking to Peter, said, you were all clean except one. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? Jeremiah 33, 8. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 23 and 24. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their, detest nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So they shall be my people, 
and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. When David, a type for Yahshua Christ, a prophecy here of Yahshua Christ, when he indeed is our king, when he is here and rules and removes all of his enemies, I'm sure we won't have much problem doing that. Because we have this guarantee. We should all the more be willing to be obedient to our God. Yet we certainly should not sin more. This is a Christian paradox. That we, having the promise of mercy, shall not be judged by the law. Yet, as Christians, we should strive for obedience under God. For this reason, Paul said in Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, which means may it not be in Greek. Paul goes on to say, yeah, we establish the law. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. For that reason, Paul also said in Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. We are not to be judged by the law. We know that we don't have salvation in the law. We only have salvation in Christ. And every man is a sinner. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh but by love serve one another. Christians should voluntarily conduct themselves by the law. We should voluntarily submit to our God. That's what God really wants from us. Peter says of this same liberty in 1 Peter 2.16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Let us again read 1 Peter 1.23, where the apostle wrote, being engendered from above, that same word, anageneo, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh, who lives and abides. The word which the King James Version translates as seed here is spora. It's not sperma the usual word for seed, right? While both words are derived from the same verb, spora is associated with the act of sowing, and sperma is associated with that which is sown. While either word may be rendered seed, spora more intimately refers to origin, and sperma refers to issue, and therefore, spora is more properly parentage, and that's how I've translated it here. Paul explains that the spirit is in our DNA. We're at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49, he wrote, In this way also is the restoration of the dead. 
It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, of course, he's only talking about Adamic bodies here, right? That's the context. The first man, Adam, came into a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first. Rather, the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, our natural bodies, of the soil. The second man from out of heaven, Christ is our first type of that. We all have that spiritual body which came from God. As he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, Adam. And as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven, Christ. And just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, Adam, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven, Christ. This is an allegory related to Genesis 2-7, where Yahweh breathed his spirit into Adam. And as Paul states here, it applies only to Adam. If you're not in his image, you're a different flesh, because there's only one flesh of men. Paul explains how to be engendered of incorruptible parentage by the word of Yahweh. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and I could defend every word of the Greek of this translation, where he says, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh, in the midst of a race, crooked and perverted. You ever check out jewishfaces.com? Among whom you appear as luminaries in the society, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run nor in vain have I labored. Paul talks of luminaries and calls our attention to 1 Corinthians 35 through 42, where he also states that all flesh is not the same flesh. There is only one flesh of men, and we all have the same provided that we are descendants of Adam. There's one flesh of men, not four. It's not red, brown, red, and, and yellow, and white. It, it, it's just white. Understanding that we should be born of incorruptible parentage and that it is our DNA which produces the spirit it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Which Yahweh our God has blessed us with, that treasure that we have in earthen vessels, as Paul explains it elsewhere. We can only then understand John's words in his first epistle, where he states in the third chapter that each of us who has been born from of God does not create wrongdoing or sin because his seed abides in him, that seed which produces that spirit of God, that seed which our first father Adam had, 
His seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong, because from of God he has been born. Paul also said at Romans 4, 8, Blessed is a man to whom Yahweh will not impute sin. If you are a pure child of Yahweh, your sins shall all be forgiven. And there are no explicitly stated exceptions to that in Scripture. The promise is firm to all the offspring. Yet it must all be understood in context. Once these things are understood, we see that salvation and corruption are absolutely racial. We either were born with eternal life, with that spirit, that seed within us, which raises that spiritual body, where we sojourn here in preparation for the kingdom of our Father. Or we do not have eternal life, and we are little but a scourge in the hands of Yahweh. This is true Christian identity. Anyone who would pervert that simple understanding is a fraud. I will be back here tomorrow night with a discussion of my translation of John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. It's a paper on Christogenia.org. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.